Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Shipwrecks. Four people are going to get on a boat. Well, a lot of people are going to get on a boat. Let's talk about who's going to be on Paul's boat. Uh, I already gave one away. Who, if you know nothing about Acts, who do you think is going to be on the boat that gets shipwrecked? Easy guess. What's your first guess? Paul, right? Paul the apostle, Paul the church planner, Paul the missionary. But at this point in his life, Paul is a prisoner. He's not able to travel where he wants to go or when he wants to go there. He's under house arrest. He's yet to be convicted, though. That's an important detail. Because also on the boat, we read Paul and several other prisoners are going to get onto the boat. Now, there's a difference between Paul and these other prisoners. Would any of you hazard a guess as to the difference between Paul's status and the other prisoners' status? Political prisoners? Perhaps. You know, I don't really know the charges of the other prisoners, but perhaps... Probably not, yeah. Probably not Christian, so that's another good difference. I'll add that to my list. That should have been in the study guide. Good answer. Citizenship, possibly. Absolutely. So Paul, is he convicted yet? Has he been convicted of a crime yet? No. So, so, so I know you've been through this story. The last couple weeks, and you can go back through and listen to the messages. Here's what we know. Over two years, Paul's been through trial after trial after trial. Jewish court, Felix's court, Festus's court. Three different times, and here's how far we've gotten over two years. No evidence has been produced to convict Paul. No eyewitnesses have come forward to corroborate the accusations, and both of the Roman judges who heard the case agreed privately in their private chambers, there's nothing to this. These really should be thrown out, but because of all kinds of personal insecurity and political pressure, Neither of them had the courage to do the right thing and acquit Paul. And so Paul kind of takes matters into his own hands and says, I'm not going to wait any more trials. I appeal to Caesar. So he's not been convicted yet. He's going to get on a boat and they need to send him to Italy so that he can have his trial. So he's in custody. He's kind of in jail, but not in prison to use more modern terms. He's, some of you didn't know that's the difference between a jail and a prison generally, but that's that's where he, he's still in custody, but he's awaiting trial. By contrast, these other prisoners, they are convicts. I don't want to be too morbid, but why do you suppose you would, when Festus could easily administer the punishment to those criminals in Caesarea, why do you suppose there would be any reason to take a convict, put them on a boat, and send them to Italy to be punished rather than keep them in Caesarea. Why do you suppose that happened? Why would Rome and the Roman government have any desire to have convicts boated into their city? I, I would think that that, I would think like, hey, keep them in Caesarea. Don't transfer them here. Why, do they, why would they want some convicts to be transported into their city? Say that Entertainment and gladiators, you're both right. Yeah, Colosseum, the arena. I know this is kind of morbid, but you understand one of the main ways that they got entertained in Rome was they brought in convicted criminals and they fed them to gladiators or animals, right? Well, after a while, you run out of convicts. I'm not trying to be funny, but it's a reality. So they always needed criminals who had been convicted to be boated in. So it's Paul and these guys. What do you think the mindset is of the other prisoners when they get on the boat? <laughs> Probably pretty bleak, huh? So you got Paul, you got the other prisoners, then you've got this centurion by the name of Julius. And I, and I call him a centurion, that's how he's identified. A centurion is a Roman uh, military leader who is in charge of how many people? How many people is a centurion in charge of? A hundred, that's where we get the word century from. Interesting note, now Julius would have been assigned to be Paul's 
armed chaperones, so to speak, by Festus. The governor would have sent him with Paul, and this is not uncommon. If they had to transport somebody from Caesarea to Rome, you would have sent a a military chaperone. You would have sent some officers along with them to accompany them. That's not unusual. What's interesting is that Luke, when he writes about this man, describes him as a very upright, honest, noble, morally good guy. And that's not inconsistent. All through the New Testament, I would challenge you to go back. The centurions we read about in the New Testament are almost always described as really good, noble men. And you're like, Rome got a lot of things wrong. They were a mess. But for some reason, they were really good at appointing upright leaders to be their centurion. So you've got Julius on the boat. You got Paul. You got several other prisoners. We've got two more people. One man by the name of Aristarchus. Now, that he's a Macedonian from Thessalonica. That should ring a bell in your mind. We've met him before in Acts. We met him in the city of Thessalonica. Do you remember anything about the intersection between the city of Thessalonica and the missionary journeys of Paul? Do you remember anything about that? Okay, if you don't remember, let's just see if you can guess. When Paul showed up in Thessalonica, what did he go there to do? Preach. Where do you think he started? In a synagogue. And what do you think happened when he went to the synagogue and taught to them about Jesus? Two things. Riots and and chased out of town. And then the people who didn't riot and chase him out of town, what did they do? They believed. So he went into town, preached, got half the people upset, and some of the people got converted. And when he left, he left behind him a church. Aristarchus is one of those converts who was, must have become a leader in that church because when Paul decided to leave the missionary field and said, I need to go to one city before I get to Rome, he said, I need to go up to where? Jerusalem, because I need to take them and offering. You know who went along with him? Aristarchus. Don't you remember there was this abrupt, Paul brings his whole traveling group with him. They get to Jerusalem and things get really riotous really fast. Haven't you ever wondered, well, Paul got arrested and then shipped off to Caesarea. What happened to all his buddies? That traveled, did they go back home? We don't know exactly, but Luke records that Aristarchus got on this boat with Paul. That's remarkable. I wonder, well, where's all his other friends? Then you also want to say, how did Aristarchus manage to get on this boat? We don't know for sure. You can go through the study guide for some of the different arguments. We don't know exactly how. For sake of time, I'll just move on. You can read about it. There's a couple different theories. Pick which one you like. And it's not really key to the story. It is interesting. Um, He gets on the boat. And then there's one other person that's on the boat that we can know by name, but he's not named in the story. But I will see. We're going to start reading chapter 27. Five words in, you get a clue as to the other person. We've got Paul. We've got several prisoners. We've got Julius, we've got Aristarchus, and we've got one other person. Let me start reading in chapter 27, verse 1. When the time came, here's here's your clue. You see that next word? We. So let me ask you, first service, just give everybody else a second. Who else is on the boat? Luke. Because in literary terms, He goes back to what we've called the we narratives. If you read through the whole book of Acts, which you have. Sometimes Luke writes in the third person, he, she, they went. And then there's three different times in the book of Luke where he changes and writes in the first person. I did, we did, us. He shifts back to saying we. You know what that means? Luke got on the boat with Paul too. Fascinating. Um, what is Luke's occupation? He's a doctor. He also has this hobby of being a a historian and a writer. And Luke is going to get on the boat. I'm just going to prepare you. He doesn't like sea travel very much. When he writes about this later on, and I want you to just pick up on this, you can tell this is a guy who doesn't like being on boats. All right, so let's read these first couple verses together. I'll pause and We'll talk our way through this. When the time came, we, Paul, Aristarchus, Julius, several other prisoners, set sail for Italy. 
Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, who was a captain of the Imperial Regiment. Next verse. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. We left on a ship whose home port was Adramidium on the northwest coast of the province of Asia. It was scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of the province. Let me just pause. Now, you probably already know this. Traveling by boat was a little bit different in the first century than it is in 2022. Have any of you ever been on a cruise ship before? Oh, they're wonderful. Jesus loves cruise ships. I'm just kidding. But I was terrified to get on a boat. I get seasick very easily. It's why the same sea. I don't want to go out with someone on their little tiny fishing boat in the bay because it's a ruined afternoon for me. There's nowhere to go. And so I'm like, I do not want to get on this boat, but someone gave us a free cruise. So I'm like, well, maybe Jesus wants me to try this out. And so my very first cruise ever was an all expenses paid trip. Please don't laugh on the duck dynasty cruise. The people watching was off the chart. And um, I'm telling you, it was amazing. I'm like, where has this been all my life? Why have I resisted this? This is great. It's very different from first century boat travel. Let me just give you a quick flyover. First of all, there were no direct flights from Caesarea Maritima to Italy. So this meant Paul would have to get on and off boats. In this story, you'll see he gets on two different boats. He gets on first a smaller coastal boat. Then he gets onto a larger cargo boat. There was no such thing as a passenger ship. There were no cruise lines. There was not like the, 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 the president's suite and the next. It was just boat. They were not built for passengers. They were built for hauling things. And no one would ever sail. Sailors stayed away from the open sea. Boats were not built to survive the open sea where the waters got rough and navigation was more difficult. Boats tried to sail near the coast so you could gauge where you were by keeping the coast in mind. Very, very, very different. It was not built for comfort. There was no buffet. There was no cafeteria. There was no bed. There was no shower. No bathrooms. Just, we'll just leave it there, all right? Paul at this point, do you think he has some experience being on boats at this point in his life? Someone added it up. By this time, his frequent sailor card had logged 3,500 nautical miles. Keep in mind, most of these trips are like 40 miles or less. That's a lot of boats. He's an experienced boat rider. Okay, That will come into play later in the story. So the first boat they get on is a coastal boat. They were smaller. They used lighter wood. They were nimble, easy to steer, but could not handle storms or deep water. They were built for short commutes from port to port to port. That's the first. So one picks them up at Caesarea. They hop on the boat, and they know eventually Julius is going to have to find them a connecting flight to get them to Italy. Let's keep reading. I need to keep the nerdery slowing down. The next day when we docked at Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul. This is interesting. Paul was really good at making friends. He was a genuinely compassionate guy. He loved people. And so probably the combination of his unique story and just his genuine, probably one of the nicer people that Julius traveled with by comparison, right? He was very kind to Paul, and he pretty much lets Paul go on parole. He lets him go ashore to visit with his friends, maybe have a good meal, get some new clothes, some prayer, so they could provide for his needs. He's really treating Paul with great kindness. You know why? Because Paul allowed himself to be treated with kindness. You can only treat people the way they allow themselves to be treated. They put out from sea from there. We encountered strong headwinds. Now, see, Luke's going to start. Everything that went wrong on this thing, he's going to write it down in his book. He is keeping track of how miserable he was. You're going to pick up on this because you can see some repeated phrases. Putting out to sea from there, we encountered strong headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. So 
we sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland because if you could sail with coast on both sides, it cut down on the wind and made it easier to steer. Verse 5. Keeping to the open sea, we passed along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, landing at Myra in the province of Lycia. There, the commanding officer, Julius, found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria that was bound for Italy. And so they you know, disembarked the one boat and got onto their connecting flight. Now they're on a different boat. Where is it from? What country? What city? Alexandria. And it's headed to where? It's a different kind of a boat. If you've read ahead in the story, you'll find out exactly what kind of boat it is. Luke tells us it's a cargo boat. Does anybody know what it is hauling? What is its precious cargo? Starts with a W, ends with a T, rhymes with heat. Wheat, very good. Awesome, awesome listening. Yeah, it's transporting wheat. There was a wheat shortage in Rome. There was lots of wheat being grown in Egypt. And so the boat owner who was on the boat His captain, who's obviously on the boat, and his entire team, it's very lucrative for them to load their boat up with wheat and make the long trip from Alexandria and sell it for a premium in Italy. That's how they made their living. And so along the way, if they could pick up passengers who would pay fare to hop on top of the wheat, they would do it. Here's We know a lot about first century grain cargo boats. And for interest of time, I will just read for you a direct quote that summarizes exactly how these boats were built from Dave Guzik. The typical grain freighter of that period was 140 feet long by 36 feet wide. This platform is about 32 feet wide. So if you add another four feet, that's about how wide it was. Big boat, heavy boat. They used a thicker, heavier wood because it needed to have that type of girth to haul as much grain as possible. You make a concession. The bigger and heavier your boat is, the harder it is to steer. So these boats, you need to understand, were built for hauling as much as they could, not for making good time in the open sea. So they were built to stay close to the coast, haul as much as they could. Let me read more. It had one mast. And one big square sail, instead of what we would think of as a rudder, it was steered with two paddles on the back part of the ship. So again, this is not some, uh, it's not going to win any races. It has one gigantic sail that's in a square, one mast, and then instead of having a rudder that would just, you, you know, you would move it, you actually had to coordinate with two groups of people manning these paddles to steer it. They were sturdy, but because of their design, it couldn't sail into the wind. So these things were extremely vulnerable and worthless in the storms. And it couldn't, they could not navigate. You couldn't just oar against the wind to overcome it. If the wind was blowing the boat in a direction the captain didn't want it to go, the wind always won. So it became critical to become familiar with the direction of the wind, the way that you're going, the times to sail, because the last thing you wanted to do is get your boat loaded with all of its cargo out in the open sea and have it blow in the direction you don't want it to go. Okay, so that was part of the backstory here. Let me keep going. Verse 7. We had, here goes Luke again, ever the optimist. We had several days of slow sailing, And after great, not even average difficulty, after great difficulty, we finally, do you hear, like he's adding all these words in here. He just doesn't like sea travel. We finally neared Snidus, but here's a key phrase, the wind was against us. Now, put your thinking caps on with everything I just told you. What would be the result of the wind being against that particular boat? What would be happening? It's going in the wrong direction, or at least it's, does it, can you relate this? It's pushing them in a direction they don't want to go. And they're unable to do anything about it. Do you like when life is like that for you? When life is pushing you in a direction you don't want to go. And there's literally nothing you can do about it. Do you like that? 
when life drags you to the dentist. You've probably been in a situation like that where something above and beyond your control blew you in a direction you never would have chosen on your own. And in spite of your best efforts, there was nothing you could do to navigate in it. So we sailed across to Crete and along the sheltered coast of the island. What they did was actually brilliant nautically. They said the only way we're going to be able to keep pushing on is if we change our course and go to a more sheltered place where the wind isn't as severe and we can maybe steer it enough to limp our way along. It's kind of like a pilot saying to the people on the airplane, uh, you know, update from the, from the pilot's seat up here. And they always sound so calm. Update from the pilot's seat up here. Oh, just a little bit of a system up ahead. We're, bad news here. We're going to be getting into the depart, you know, your arrival time about 20 minutes later, but it's because we're taking a longer route to avoid a storm. You're like, oh, these people, 20 minutes late. But what they're really saying is, this is a better outcome than us trying to navigate this storm. So this is what they're doing. They're adjusting their route. I'll keep reading for sake of time. Verse 8. We, here, Luke again. We struggle along the coast with, he's really on that great difficulty phrase, isn't he? And the next word, and finally arrived at Fair Havens, the most inappropriately named city in the ancient world. Um, this was Podunksville. There was nothing fair about these havens. Uh, I read one commentary that said it was obviously someone that worked from their Bureau of Travel that named this town. Luke's going to give you a better nickname for it later on. But they arrive at Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Here's Luke gives you a key phrase here, verse 9. We had what? Lost a lot of time. Now, this is probably in the month of October. AD 59, there were certain seasons that every sailor and captain knew are no sail seasons because in the late fall and the early winter, there are typhoons and storms that blow up in that area that make it impossible for any ship to travel on those seas. But they've got a goal in mind. They want to get to Italy before winter. If they don't get to Italy, they're going to have to do the next best thing. And you know what that is? First of all, we missed this detail. Do you know how many people are on the boat at this point? Luke tells us later. He hasn't told us yet. Do any of you know? 276 people on the boat. It's a lot of people. They're going to have to wait out the winter season somewhere. How would you like to be Julius with the new responsibility of babysitting some convicts on their way to the arena for the winter? Fair Havens was Podunksville. It was an unprotected harbor. There was no accommodations there. It was a boring town. And 276 people probably can't even find a hotel. This is not the place you want to winter. But they had lost a lot of time, meaning sailing conditions. The window for smooth sailing is just about closed. And I want to point out to something to you. Everybody on that boat, from the owner to the captain to Luke, to the crew. They all have come to the same conclusion. We're not going to make it to Italy. That ship is, yeah. Three of you are still with me. I'm not doing good this morning, sorry. If I, listen, if I make a shipwreck boring, I have to find something else to do. But there's, there's nothing for them to do. They all agree, we're not going to make Italy, so we've got to adjust our expectations. What's something more achievable for us? We're going to have to winter somewhere. And so now the conversation goes, where should we winter? And Paul decided, I love this, this part. Uh, the weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall. And Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Now think about it. Do you know somebody that's always offering opinions where they should have no opinion to offer? Or are you that person? You've ever had someone trying to tell you how to do something and you didn't ask for their opinion? And you're thinking, who are you to tell me how to? This is Paul. Paul decides, I'm going to just take it upon myself to step into the, the team huddle of the captains and the officers and I'm just going to speak up and give them some sailing advice here. Let's read what Paul says. Paul decided to speak to the ship officers about it and here's what he says, verse 10. Men, he said, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck. Loss of cargo and danger to our lives as well. Can you imagine being the skipper of this boat and being like, who does this guy think he is? How dumb does he think we are? I'm the owner of this boat. This captain has been on. We know these seas. And you're just Paul. 
Now, I want you to, to understand something. There is no indication in this scripture for us to think that Paul's trying to be prophetic at all. When Paul is speaking on behalf of God or something an angel told him, he usually gives us his source. The Greek word there where he says, I believe, actually is best translated, as a result of my experience or based upon my experience, I advise. And you're thinking, his experience? I need to go on this aside. You don't have to turn there, but you may want to write this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15. It's a letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Here's what he writes in this part of that letter. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day clinging to wreckage adrift at sea. You're thinking, Pastor, why are you reading that here? Here's the detail why. Do you know about what year Paul wrote that letter? He wrote that letter in 56 AD. If you zoomed in on Paul's life in 56 AD, his LinkedIn resume at that point in his life would say, survivor of three shipwrecks and has spent one entire day and night holding on to a broken piece of boat at sea. This story takes place in 59 AD. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Yeah. At this point, Paul could walk in that meeting and say, gentlemen, if there's one thing in this life I know, it is shipwrecks. I have my master's degree. I've completed my internship in shipwrecks. I know a good shipwreck when I see one. I know a storm that's going to wreck a ship when I see one. And I'm telling you guys, if you sail into this storm, it's going to be shipwreck number four for me. Owner, you're going to lose your cargo. It's going to be a total financial loss for you. Don't do it. But, verse 11, the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the ship's owner than to Paul. Here's what it means. Julius has to make a decision. Paul is saying, based on my experience as a professional shipwrecker, don't go down this road. But then he's also listening to the owner who's more financially, has more financially at risk than Paul. And to the captain, who has captained more ships than Paul. And I can't say that I blame Julius for listening to them over Paul. Can you blame him for that? I don't. He's saying these people probably have the more credible story here than this guy. He's a prisoner. He's a nice guy. And I appreciate his story. But these men, they're the real decision makers here. All Paul is trying to do is saying, listen, learn from my shipwreck. Don't waste your shipwrecks, brothers, sisters. Don't waste your shipwrecks. If you survive them, learn from them. If you're in a season in life and you have a person that you trust who comes in your life and says, listen, I see you getting ready to do this or not do this. Can I just speak in your life? Been there. <laughs> Wrecked there. I speak very transparently to our, to our staff and a lot of times to our pastors, and I am not hesitant to speak in their life when I say, listen, and I say this all the time, don't, don't you guys waste my landmines. I was in that situation for, before, and I probably felt like you did, and I stepped this way, and I lost a limb, and I walked with a limp because of it. Don't do that. If you survive your shipwrecks, don't waste them. Learn from them. Share those with others and receive wisdom from people who have been there. Don't shut them out. They didn't listen to Paul probably for good reason, and it turned into disaster. Verse 12. And since Fair Haven, see, here's the better description of Fair Havens from Luke, who already wanted to get off the boat anyway. And since Fair Havens was an exposed harbor, here's their slogan, here's their travel slogan, a poor place to spend the winter. Now, why, why was this a poor place? Because if they would have pulled their boat in the harbor and put each of the, we know the boat had four anchors, they tell us later. If they would have dropped all four anchors, all that would have done is made the boat essentially a punching bag for these storms that came through because there was no protection from the storms. There was no geography there that kept the storms out. It would have been a sitting duck in the harbor and probably while they wintered in Fair Havens, which is boring Podunksville anyway, the boat would have been beaten to death by the storms. Then they would have been stuck in Fair Havens with no boat and no wheat. That's not good. 
Most of the crew wanted to go on to Phoenix, not Phoenix, Arizona, but Phoenix on the same island. It's on the same, it was only 40 miles away, guys. This is not like they're thinking reckless. They wanted to spend the winter there. Phoenix, by contrast, was a good harbor with only a southwest and northwest exposure. They just simply wanted to move on. Now, it's interesting. He uses this phrase, most of the crew. How would Luke know that more than a simple majority preferred Phoenix? What's that telling us about how they came to the decision here? How would you know to quantify it as most of the crew felt this way? What would you have to do to make that conclusion? Probably take a vote. They probably took a vote and said, all right, Fair Havens, who wants to stay in Fair Havens? Paul's hand goes up. He's looking at Luke. He's nudging him. He's like, you put your, put your hand up. Aristarch, just put your hand. How many want to win her in Phoenix? Hey, everybody's hands go up. So guess where they go? They go to Phoenix, or they try to. Let's go to the next verse. When, see, and this is where I heard this word from our sister today. When a light wind began blowing from the south, this was a wind that was moving, pushing them in the direction that they wanted to go. So they waited until the conditions seemed to be favorable. Here's an ominous phrase, foreshadowing, Luke uses. The sailors thought they could make it. That already tips you off that little did they know they're not gonna. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore, right? We're like, "It's, it's already sketchy. Let's sail close to the shore. Because why? They can... They only had two ways of navigation. There's no GPS on the boat. There's two ways sailors navigated back in the day. By eyesight, based on the shore, or if you couldn't see the shore, what else could they use to navigate? They used the stars and the moon, right? They would have their little charts, and they'd do their math. You know, they, I think they all probably had to do trigonometry in school back then and actually use it. It was a good thing for them. Here's the problem. What would be, if those are the only two things you can use to know where you're at, then what would be your worst nightmare? If, if what? If it's cloudy and you're out at sea and you can't see the coast, how in the world do you know where you are? You can't, right? They pull up anchor. They sail close to the shore of Crete, but the weather changed abruptly, and a wind of typhoon strength called a what? North, uh, a, we call it a nor'easter. They call it a northeaster. Actually, that's an English transliteration the Greek word in here is Eurocladon, Euroclidon. If you look at it, it looks like European uh, cyclone, it looks like if you put them together. It was a named storm system, Eurocladon. It blows up. It was a regular thing. It's well-documented historically. If you go into, uh, if you check out that video I talked about, they'll go way deep into all the meteorology behind it. But all you need to know is that this thing blows up. It burst across the island. And now here's a phrase that should mean something to you if you listen to me. It did what? It blew them. Now, why is that bad news? Can't see the shore. And if you're in a, not just a foon, but if you're in the middle of a full-blown typhoon, what can't you see? Now, let me ask you a question here. The stars are one of the things they always look to to know where they were at. Now they couldn't see them. Did the stars go away? Why couldn't they see them? They were just simply hidden for a season, right? But who hung the stars in the first place? Who let those clouds go there? Yeah. There will be seasons in your life where God will not be easy to see. But he's still present. In this case, they're in the middle of a storm. And I, here's the fun message that you won't get all of today. God does not silence every storm. Yay. Pastor, we like those stories better. You know, the one where they're, they're out in the boat and they're panicking in the storm because that's how my life is sometimes. I'm getting pelted from the left and the right and it looks really bad. And they wake up Jesus and Jesus says, what, peace be still. And it all gets, that's the, I want that message. Give that altar call today. Put that anointing on me today. What about this one? We're going to keep reading. Jesus does not interrupt the storm. The storm goes for 14 days until it blows itself out. How about that one? 
God doesn't always calm the storm. You know why? Because sometimes he needs to use that storm to push us to a place that we need to be, but we would have never gone without a storm. Did you hear me? You just didn't like that, okay. (laughs) There are some places in life that God needed to grow you, to take you, to use you, to stretch you. Somebody he needed you to talk to and to live out your testimony in front of. And you would have never put yourself in that position on your own. And so a storm had to come. And in that storm, it seemed like the stars were hidden from you. You lost your bearing on the shore. All of your equipment that you have that usually works to steer your life was useless. And you got to the point where you probably had to say, like these guys did, just pull down the mast, pull down the the sails, throw everything overboard. Our only hope is to just sit down and let this storm blow us wherever it wants to go, and then we'll take bearings and figure out where we are. And thanks be to God that he doesn't stop triangulating on our position. Even when we feel like we can't trust and all hope is gone, you can still trust Jesus. You can still trust the Lord. And you can trust the one who can stop the storm as much as the one who can lord over the storm. Right? Burst and blew us out to sea. I got to finish up. I'm out of time. Let me finish at least reading through. The sailors, this is fascinating. They do something very smart here, and you'd think it's very dumb and futile, but it's very smart. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind. So let's stop reading there. Put your thinking caps on. If they can't turn the ship into the wind with the little bit that we know about boats, what does that mean? There's nothing you can do. In other words, there's a battle between sailor and wind. Do you know who's undefeated in this story? Wind. The wind is pushing them in a direction they want, don't want to go. And there's nothing in their human effort they can do to reverse their circumstances. I'm preaching to somebody this morning. I hope the Holy Spirit gives you ears to ear because I can't break it all down, but you, you can put yourself, that's a metaphor for where you are circumstances you can't control are pushing you in a direction in life that you don't want to choose. You don't want to go there. And you're trying to resist it. And no matter how hard you resist, it's still pushing you there. You know what they did? They did something smart. Rather than fight the wind to the point where it would sink them right there, they finally get up and they let it run. That's a scary phrase. I'm a control guy. I get into problems and my solution is let me, you know, when I'm faced with one of these types of things, I'm like, all right, if I just work hard enough, think long enough, I'll find a solution. It's in a spreadsheet. It's in a manual. It's on Wikipedia. It's in wisdom somewhere. It's, it's in the Bible. I, I, and sometimes the stars are hidden from you. And you're like, I, things that normally work for me that are tools that God gives me to work, they're not working. That they do something wiser. They say, rather than die fighting a battle we can't win, Let's just take down the mast and try and ride this thing out. In other words, we'll wait until this storm blows itself out and the sky clears. Because here's the beautiful things like storms. Storms are not permanent. They blow up abruptly, but you know what? They end. Can I say a word to somebody? This too shall pass. Grab that if you need to. That's for this room. Super, you were here for first service. I did not get that word from the Lord of the first service. This too shall pass. That's why people say, that's why I say, listen, if you have to listen to both sermons, they're, they're the same, but they're different. <laughs> so they gave up. Sometimes the best thing you can do when you're fighting God is just give up. Isn't that what surrender really means? We stop fighting God for his job. Well, pastor, that's stupid. That's stupid. If I, give, if, if I give up, I'm going to shipwreck out here. That's not how the story, well, it is kind of, but it isn't. We sailed along the sheltered side of a small island named Cotta, where with, here he goes again, with great difficulty. This is a fun phrase. We hoisted aboard the lifeboat being towed behind us. Fun fact, there is a second boat that accompanied this boat. It was a lifeboat that they tied to the back of the main cargo boat by a rope. And that lifeboat was used if they couldn't dock, they would use that lifeboat to let people go to and from shore as necessary. But in a storm, that thing would become like a wrecking ball. 
And so they don't want to leave that thing out there. They had to pull it in. But who pulled it in? Tells you. There's a wee little word in there. You see it? Which means at least who pulled it on? I'm telling you, he is now really mad. We, everybody's on the boat trying to do something else. Who's over there in the corner writing in his notebook again? Doctor! Can you make yourself useful and go pull the boat? And not me, I'm a writer, doctor. It's already difficult. It's greatly difficult. Now he has to pull the light boat. And how hard is it? It's with great difficulty. His favorite phrase. Luke is just not into boat travel. Verse 17. Then the sailors, this is fascinating, they bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. You know what a zip tie is? It's kind of like what they're doing here. It was something that sailors did back in that day. They didn't want the boat to split apart, so they would wrap rope around it as tight as they could and cinch it up tight to try and keep it from bursting. And even if it cracked, it would keep it together. They tried to strengthen the hull. They were afraid of being driven across to what are called the Sirtis Sands. This was like an ancient Bermuda's Triangle. They were very notorious. They were these places where there was always shipwrecks. And they're afraid we're being blown so far. We're not only going to miss Italy, we're going to get blown the whole way to Africa. And so what they do, they throw the sea anchors out to not stop the ship, but to slow it down. In other words, like, look, we don't want to be blown. We're going to be already going to be blown somewhere off course. But can we at least slow it down? Can we put some kind of boundary here? There's a whole message in this too about even when you're in crisis, what boundaries do you still keep? How desperate is desperate? What things you say at the end of the day, this is just not a hill I'm going to die on. They throw some anchors down. What do you use to anchor you? When So in other words, the boat has anchors down and the storm's still blowing it because the anchors aren't holding it, but it's not blowing it as far as to death. There's some anchor that's still holding that boat from death, even in the storm. What do you throw down? Yeah, underwater sails. Yeah. What do you throw down? When you're in crisis, what do you throw down? What holds you? It might move you around a little bit, but what keeps you from shipwrecking, getting blown into the sands in the storm? Next verse, I gotta finish. I didn't even get to the points, but they're in your study guide, so sorry about that. Um, The next day, as gale force winds continued to batter the ship. Are you sleeping during this storm on this boat? No. Are you eating? Probably not, because what are you going to be doing on a boat if it's up and down like this for two weeks? You're going to be seasick. And Paul even says later on, hey, after, after two weeks, none of us were eating because we're all seasick. The crew began throwing the cargo overboard because there's only two things left to do to keep that boat from sinking. You've got to get it light because the lower it sits in the water when those waves comes, it's filling the boat, making it heavier, so you want it to sit up higher. So there's only two things you can throw off before the people. You can throw off the cargo And then you can throw off all of the equipment you need to paddle the boat. And they do both. The following day, they took even some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. The terrible storm raged for many days. Luke tells us in a couple verses, it went for 14 days. Blotting out the sun and the stars, and here's the phrase, until at last. How much hope was gone? That means if you took a survey of all 276 on the boat and said, all right, by show of hands, how many of you think we're going to make it out of here alive? You know how many hands go up? Zero, including Paul's. Luke's showing you, Paul, this man of faith, was in such a storm that even he, on a practical level, had lost hope. But God's going to give him some reassurance. Let me finish out the section, verse 21. No one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, now here's the thing, Paul is going to be a leader because storms have a way of squeezing out your true identity, refining your character. And you're going to see leadership qualities in Paul. And Paul has this brilliant idea. He's like, you know what? I've got a motivational speech I can deliver to these guys. If I can just get the crew together and I can somehow make my voice heard over the wind, I'm going to turn this whole thing around. He's like, I know exactly how I'm going to start this this, this speech out. Here's his opening statement. Men, (laughs) you should have listened to me in the first place. Don't you love him? Are you that person? I told you so. I don't want to tell you I told you so, but I told you so. You're kind of actually hoping that things go off the rails a little bit so you can just be there. You're kind of rooting for it to slide sideways so you can. I don't think that's what Paul's trying to accomplish here, although it comes across that way. And maybe there's a little bit of that in there. 
But I don't think given the circumstance that they're in and what he's about to say, that's a, I think he's saying, guys, uh, I know you didn't think that I'm credible, but I'm credible. Even though he was only 90% right, he said, we'll lose our lives if we go out here. And that's not what happened. That's how we know. He was just speaking from experience, not from prophecy, because it was a prophetic word from God. It would have all panned out the way God said. That's how you know a true prophet. They got to be right all the time. That's why I don't think people should be running around calling themselves, giving themselves titles. If, you, you know, if the job description doesn't match the title, be very careful. Because <laughs> if you're a prophet who's not always accurate, you know what that makes you? A false prophet. And, uh, that's not a job I really want to sign up for. You should have left me, listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss. Thank you so much, Paul. We feel better. But here's what he says. I got, I got bad news and good news. Now, are you a good news first person or a bad news first person? Give me the bad news first. I'm that person. Then give, He's going to give him bad news, good news. See if you can pick it out. Take courage. Here's the good news. None of you will lose your lives. <laughs> We're going to make it. Even though the ship will go down. Bad news. The ship they're sitting on at the moment. Paul, how can you be so sure? Last night, an angel of the God, I love this phrase, to whom I belong. And probably the only other thing I can get out to you today, can you grab on to the reality you belong to God? Can I say a less popular phrase? You are his possession? Let me ask you something. When you have invested significant money and care and life into someone or something, and they're in danger, or they're lost, or it's lost, don't you bend over backwards to take care of it and look after it and make sure it's okay? Goodness, my 10-year-old went with me to a trade show yesterday, and it's filled with people. And I'm at that point in life where I'm like, okay, you know, we, he doesn't need to hold my hand anymore. And every now and again, he's like, Dad, can I just walk right over to that table right over there and look? At, Absolutely, son. And I don't want to make him feel bad, but look, I am side-eyeing him the whole time. He belongs to me. I'm a good dad, I think, or I'm trying to be. If I saw him in danger or duress, you know what I'm not going to go do? Take a nap and eat a sandwich. I've also learned with my 10-year-old, if he loses something he didn't pay for, he's not incentivized to go find it. I'm constantly looking for things he lost that I paid for. But when it's something, if it's a $5 pair of earbuds from whatever it is, six and up or nine and below or five and more or whatever it is now, if he loses that, the whole house is turned upside. Why? He bought it. It belongs to him and he wants to find it. Jesus bought you. He paid for you. Paul says, here's why I have confidence. God sent an angel to remind me I belong to him. He is actively looking out for me because I'm his. And good news, I happen to be on a boat with the rest of y'all. So you're lumped into it. And he said, oh, this is such a good part. Ah, worship team, come back. <laughs> come on. Oh, I got it. Okay. And I also, I'm speaking way too fast today. Even those of you who know English, you can't. I know. I'm sorry. And he said, here's what the angel says to Paul. Don't be afraid. Why, why did the angel say, don't be afraid, Paul? Why? Because he was afraid. Thank God that Paul, this guy we feel like we don't compare to, is in that boat afraid. You know why I'm thankful? Because you know how many times we still get afraid and then we feel worse as Christians because of it? You know what God didn't do? He didn't say, you know what? I'm going to teach him how to bone up, man up. I'm not going to send him an angel. Don't come back here. Gabriel, come here. Don't go down there and encourage him. Let him figure it out. He says, my son is down there. He's doing the best he can, but the best he can isn't enough. He doesn't need a lecture. He needs some reassurance. Go give him some courage. You can ask God for that. And here's what he says. Paul, good news. Ship's going to be okay. That's not what he says. Paul, good news. 
My purpose is for you to preserve. You are going to be set free. I'm going to, I'm going to jump overboard right now, and I'm going to airlift you to the island. I'm going to break those chains off for you, and you can hightail it into the town and start preaching again. That's not what he says. He says, good news, Paul. You will, <laughs> you will surely stand trial before Caesar. Does that sound like something that would encourage Paul? But you know what it shows you? I think it's the most underrated, underappreciated theme in the whole book of Acts. And I'm so sorry it took me 40 some odd years of my life to see this. How have I missed the relentless love God has for Caesar? Isn't that a thread that runs through the whole third of this book? Paul could have died right then and gone to heaven. If you read his letters, that was his preference. But God says, Paul, I'm going to keep you alive, not to plant another church. There's a man that is lost that I love. He is lost, 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 lost. And nobody loves him. He will never hear the gospel unless I can get you there. And I love that lost man so much. I'm going to preserve this whole boat of 276 people. You're going to make it to shore, and you're going to make it there because there's a loss. One of my kids is lost. If Paul died then and there, he would have gained and Jesus would have gained, but there was somebody still lost. Can you see the relentless love that our Savior has for hopelessly lost people in our world like Caesar, like Festus, like Felix, like Bernice, like Drusilla, all these people. You know people like this. You know people. Some of you might be these people. People have been trying to speak to you about getting your act together and you just are so prideful you will not give in. You know better. You're waiting for another day. He loves you enough to keep sending person after person. Jesus loves all people, including unbelievers. And what's more? What's more? God, here's what the angel says last thing. God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. The angel says, Paul has granted to you, and everyone said, God has granted. God. Granting someone something is a response to what? A request. The angel tells us what Paul and who Paul was praying about. What was Paul praying to God for? And the angel says, God's granted your request. What was he praying to God for? It's here. Read it. For who? Safety for who? Not just himself, but all these lost people. Who do you pray for? What do you pray about? Isn't it beautiful to see a man like Paul who in life's storm was not just crying out for his own salvation, but for everybody else on board? Like Father... Like son, I hope you see in this story, among all the other things, God's relentless pursuit of his kids. Aren't you glad God didn't give up chasing you? Aren't you glad? And maybe now he's using you as a vessel to pursue somebody else. I've gone over time. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and pray. Apologize for that. I need to do better with that. There's some more information in your study, God, I didn't get to. I, I need to get to this, though. I got, I'll move as quickly as I can. I want to give two invitations today. Number one, I'll just make this very clear. Because I think if you're here this morning and you're not right with Jesus, you've had multiple, Holy Spirit's been talking to you all morning. Now it's time for you to make a decision. Are you going to yield to Jesus today or are you going to resist? Those are your two choices. Some of you are probably hoping this ends because you feel something inside of you right now that's not comfortable, but you recognize that God is dealing with your heart and you are in this moment resisting and hoping you can get out of here and hit the reset button. You can do that. You are allowed to do that. I will tell you, you will be exercising, the re you will be using resistance to make your resistor stronger. Today, if you can hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Are you ready to surrender? I'm not talking about halfway or a third of the way. Are you ready to come into God's kingdom? Yeah, I need all my storms to end. That's not promised. A simple prayer isn't going to make all your storms reverse necessarily. Because if you're only coming to Jesus for smooth seas, the next time a storm blows up, you'll bounce again. I want you to have the kind of faith that Paul has, that in the storm or in the peace, 
He puts his hope and his trust in Jesus, even when the stars and the shoreline are hidden. So if you're ready to come into God's kingdom, you're ready to repent, and do you believe? Do you believe you need to be saved, that you can be saved by Jesus, and that he will save you if you ask, and will you turn away from your life being lived the way you want it to and live it Jesus' way? That's all it is. That's how we all come into God's kingdom the same way. We don't come into God's kingdom and say, now I can do everything I want to be. I can be everything I want to be, and Jesus will co-sign it all. That's not God's kingdom. God's kingdom is, God, I surrender all my agenda for who I am. And I defer to your lordship in my life. I'm not going to try and be everything I want to be anymore. But I want to be exactly as you want me to be. If you're ready for that, tell that to Jesus right now. Use your own words and tell him. Tell him you are ready to repent. You recognize you need to be forgiven. That you believe he is the only one who can save you from your own sinfulness and from permanent separation from God through death. That the reason you believe that is because you're accepting the facts that Jesus is exactly who the Bible reveals to us that he was. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross in your your place. He rose from the dead. Confess that to him. Confess, just tell him, you're ready to stop fighting the wind. You're gonna surrender to his leadership. If you prayed that prayer with me today, you're saved. We celebrated that with somebody in the first service this morning. I wonder if there's anybody else here today who says, today I've made a decision to receive salvation from Jesus. If you prayed that prayer with me, I'm just going to ask you to do something brave. I'm looking around. The rest of our church family isn't. They're just praying for you right now that you have the courage to take one more step today. It's not required, but it's, it's an awesome, healthy step to take. I'm going to count to three. If you prayed that prayer, slip up a hand, make eye contact with me. You can put your hand right back down. Just want to celebrate and cement this moment in your mind. One, two, three. Anybody pray that prayer with me today at all? Make sure I can see. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Here's my second request. Every head up, every eye open. In fact, if you're willing and able, let's do this. Why don't you stand with me? It's going to make responding to this easier. I know I'm two minutes into overtime today. I'll give it back to you next week because it's a guest speaker and you know, all bets are off. No, I'm just kidding. I'm aware of this and I'm sensitive to that, so I want to be sensitive to our kids' ministry. But I, I absolutely don't want to miss out on this, okay? Let me do a couple things. We are going to give you an opportunity to give and your tithes and your offerings and your thank you for that. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray and the team will come and serve you that way if you'd like to give. Keith and the team are going to lead us in one more song. Here's what I want to do today. I felt very strongly this morning in the first service and again in this service that I need to just make myself available with our prayer team. If you find yourself in a situation like what Paul was in here, life's, you're in a storm and you know you are. And you just need some reassurance today. I don't want you to be afraid to ask for that because God shows us he sent it to Paul. He recognized the boat that he was in. He couldn't see things that would assure him. And he needed just the Lord to stand beside him and say, Paul, I want you to see me standing beside you. And that's all he needed. Then he had courage, even though the storm wasn't over. But he had courage. And yeah, I I believe in praying for storms to end. But you know what I need even more than that? If you could give me courage to live through a storm with the same type of peace in my heart as when there's no storm, that's even better. So I want to pray that. And I have to believe that there are some of you today that would say, you know what, Pastor, I would welcome just a simple prayer of reassurance. You don't even have to come and empty your whole story to us. If you want to, we're here. But I, Suba and I and whoever else is here from our prayer team, we're just going to anoint you with oil and just pray over you. Just pray that God will assure you that he is beside you in this season and that you can somehow trust him even if you can't see the stars and the ways to navigate, that you can just trust him that you are in the palm of his hand and he's, if he's not intervened, it's only because he's moving you to a place that you might not have chosen to go before, but it's for his glory and for your best, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing in us and through us through your word today. Father, we do uh, surrender again our finances to you. We release those to you for your kingdom to do your work. Father, I pray for those who might just need some reassurance today that you remind them that the God of, of that, 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 that the God of, of the beginning and the end stands beside us. The God that's in the storm and above the storm and speaks over the winds and waves is in this with us, standing beside us. And you have purposes for us. 
And we can trust that you can work, you can redeem these storms to still extract your glory from it. In my name is Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.